All right, so um, on September 24th, 1980, a man walks into Binion's Horseshoe Casino in Las Vegas. He walks in with two suitcases. Now, the casino at the time had a policy that they would allow and cover any bet of any amount provided it was the first time you made a bet in their casino. So this man walks into the casino on September 24th, 1980, and he shows up with two suitcases. He had never placed a bet before in this casino. He shows up with two suitcases. One of them was empty. The other one had inside it $777,000 in cash. He takes that suitcase, he walks down to the gambling, to the, to the floor, he walks to the craps table, and he places a bet, all of his money, all $777,000, on the do not pass line on the craps table. Do we have any gamblers in the house? Of course not, this is church. Okay, sure, right. Whoever the secret gambler is, if you could tell me after the service what the do not pass line is. I tried to read about it, I didn't understand it. Apparently, he understood it, because two rolls of the dice later, this man doubles his bet of $777,000. The owner of the casino personally came down and helped him load up his second suitcase, which was originally empty and is now full of cash. They load up the suitcases, and this man walks out of the Binion's Horseshoe Casino and basically just disappears for about five years. He's still known today. The story is known as the suitcase man. He does appear later on, but not to the same success. High stakes. Invested interest in an outcome. Decisions that can change your life. While I assume most of us have not been to the craps table with near a million dollars on the line, each of us have, to varying degrees, been put in situations with high stakes. Every married man here at one point put themselves on the line when they got down on their knee and proposed. You have no idea how scary of a moment that is. Even if you're really, really confident she's going to say yes, it's still kind of terrifying. When I proposed to Sarah, I rehearsed that speech dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I could have given it backwards and forwards. But today, right now, I couldn't tell you what I said. My nerves were so amped up, I just kind of blacked out for a little while. Apparently it was good. She said yes, so it worked out. But it was still kind of terrifying. Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Galatia. He is opposing false teachers who have come into the church, discrediting him and his authority and his message. And they themselves were teaching a message of lies and distortions of the gospel. They've been adding to the work of Christ by saying that in order for a Gentile to become a Christian, they had to put their faith in Jesus, yes, but also they had to be circumcised. This has brought with it chaos and confusion and has broken Paul's heart. And so the whole first chapter really is Paul both laying out the true gospel as well as defending his own authority and calling to the people so that they would listen and trust in what he had to say. Chapter 1 ended with Paul documenting how his early years after meeting Jesus on that roadside went. And he continues in chapter 2, sharing some of what happened when he went to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and talk about the gospel. This morning I have, for those of you taking notes, I have three kind of main points to kind of help keep us on the rails. Um, the first being a high-stakes confrontation. 
The second, a unifying affirmation. And the third, a generous consideration. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in that first point. Uh, but that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are good. You show it to us every day. You've showed it to us already this morning. You give us opportunities to gather together. You give us this opportunity to be together, to worship you, to pray, to sing, to engage in conversation and community with one another. You show yourself to us every day. You remind us of your awesomeness and your goodness every day. Lord, help us to be mindful of those things, to not put our heads down and our earpods in and ignore the world around us, but rather to engage with it because you are revealing yourself to us. This morning, you are revealing yourself to us in your word. You have a message for us this morning. And though we come into this place having a variety of different experiences this week, having a variety of different experiences in our lives, we all come to hear from you. You have a message for each one of us today. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds to comprehend, and hands and feet to respond to what it is you have for us today. And so as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Galatians 2, starting in uh, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So we begin with a very high-stakes confrontation. Paul has been preaching and teaching and planting churches for about 14 years at this point. He goes up to Jerusalem. Whenever you see in Scripture, it says they're going to Jerusalem. They're always going up because Jerusalem is literally on a mountain. So you go up to Jerusalem, you come down from Jerusalem. So he goes up to Jerusalem. With him, he brings Barnabas and Titus. Jerusalem is the headquarters. It is the center point. It is the place where the apostles were. It's the city of God and his people. It's home base for the Christians. Now, Barnabas is with Paul. We are introduced to Barnabas the first time in Acts chapter 4. Does anybody know what Barnabas' name means? In the back. Son of encouragement. 
son of encouragement. He was a gifted encourager. It's good to have those people in your life. It's good to have those people in your circle of influence. Good to have those gifted encouragers around. They build up, they lift up, they support you. If that's you, if you are one of those people who just loves to see those around you thriving and and going forward and you love to just spur them on, please lean into that gifting. Lean into that. That is a gift from God to be a blessing to other people. Lean into that. It is a great blessing to have people like that in our lives. So Barnabas is with Paul, and Barnabas is safe. He's safe. He's a safe ally in this confrontation because he's a Jewish man. He was raised under the law. He converted to the gospel, so he knows the gospel. And for the purpose of this confrontation, he's circumcised. Now, Titus comes along as well. Titus is not Jewish. We find out in verse 3, he is a Greek, a Gentile, but also a convert to Christianity. He was led to the Lord by Paul. Now, a Gentile believer in Jerusalem could be a bit divisive by his presence, but Paul knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. So why does Paul go to Jerusalem? Why, after 14 years of doing ministry, why does he go up to see the leaders in Jerusalem? It says in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. He went up from a revelation, presumably from God. God told him to go. Throughout this letter, Paul has already regularly, continually made it very clear who he is, what he does, what he preaches. All of it comes from the Lord. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he starts right at the top. Paul, an apostle, not from men, but from Jesus. His role as an apostle came not of himself or anyone else, but from God. In verse 12 of chapter 1, the message, he talks about the message he preached, that it wasn't his own message, but from God himself. In verse 15, the pursuit of preaching the gospel, planting churches, all of those things came from God. Paul's authority, his message, his calling, and as we see here in chapter 2, his direction and decision-making are all guided and led by God himself. I hear that, I read that, I think about that, and I say, oh, that we might all be like Paul. You say, well, yeah, but that's Paul. I mean, he's set apart. He's, he's a different kind of cat. Yeah, I'll give you that. He is. But at the same time, he's just a guy. His connection and relationship with God was cultivated and developed and matured by his own dedication and devotion to pursuing God himself. I heard it said in a song one time, if you want to grow with God, it's not complicated, it's just costly you got to spend that time currency. If you want to hear from God, you want to know what his will and desire for you is, you got to open the book and read and engage with him. That's why we're reading through Galatians as a church. If you're just joining us your first time with us, as we study the book of Galatians, as we preach through it, every day we're reading one chapter of Galatians, Monday through Saturday. So every Monday we're in Galatians 1. Every Tuesday we're in Galatians 2. Every Wednesday we're in Galatians 3, so on and so forth. How's that going for you guys? Great, good, awesome. Thumbs up and waves, awesome, love it. Keep going. We're going to find some different ways to try and engage. Like I said, we're going to have questions during the week. We're going to hear from some people. We want this to be something that we're regularly doing. Like I said, by the time we get done with Galatians, for as slow as I'm going through this book preaching, we are going to know this book backwards and forwards. We're going to be deeply rooted in what Paul has to say as far as what freedom in Christ looks like. 
This is the kind of thing that's going to help us grow, that helps us spur on in our maturity, in our faith, in our relationship with God, being in his word regularly. That's what Paul did. Paul was regularly guided by the word of God. He is driven and led by his relationship with God. God told him to go to Jerusalem, so he went. He wasn't called to the principal's office. This wasn't about him being in trouble. This also wasn't about Paul being worried that he was preaching the wrong message, like he was going to get affirmation. If that were the case, he wouldn't have waited 14 years. And see the humility that Paul has. He meets with the leaders in private. He's not looking for a big public divisive fight. He wants a conversation and some clarity so that everyone can move forward together. So what is this high-stakes confrontation really about? We've made mention to it. We've talked about it. It's clearly addressed in Acts chapter 15 that basically those Judaizers, those false leaders had come in, and in Acts 15 it gives kind of their mission statement. It says, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's it in a nutshell. They were teaching you cannot be saved without circumcision. This concept was sweeping through churches, dividing churches, dividing and keeping those churches that are, were primarily Gentile, because you still have parts of the world where Gentiles lived kind of exclusively and away from Jewish people. So you have some churches that were primarily Gentile. You have some churches that are primarily Jewish. These churches won't interact with each other because one is holding on to the circumcision thing. The other one wants nothing to do with it. And so there is division even amongst churches and then even within the communities themselves. It's a severe issue to the point where meetings like this one are starting to happen. This issue, we, as we have said here, is of the highest of stakes. Because this was not a disagreement about style or type of ministry. This was something that could not be neglected or overlooked. As Paul said in the beginning of this letter, this was about the truth of the gospel versus lies and deceit distortions and distractions, a false message that would condemn people to hell. So Paul goes to Jerusalem looking for unity. And it says he set before them the gospel that he preached. He says, here, here's what I've been preaching. Here's the gospel that I have been preaching. Faith in Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection alone for the forgiveness of sins for the adoption into the family of God. That's the gospel I've been preaching, that God came to earth, died on a cross for our sins so that we might have forgiveness and new life. That and that alone can pay the penalty for our sins. That's what he lays before them. Paul wanted the leaders in Jerusalem to know and realize that if they were affirming or even just allowing this other message of adding to the gospel to be out there and be preached, if Jerusalem, if the headquarters was okay with this other message going out, it was going to condemn those who believed it. And it would destroy the Gentile churches that had already existed because they would be confused and eventually walk away from their faith if they were forced to conform under the Jewish law. So that's what he means when he talks about running in vain. He wants to know, Paul wanted to know, is this, am I doing this for nothing? Are you guys going to just encourage this other false gospel because if you do it's just going to kill everything that I've been building for the last 14 years but this is not a selfish motivation it comes from a place of love and care and concern for those who have heard the gospel and believed he says in verse 5 
We would not submit for a moment to this false teaching. Why? So the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you, for others. Brothers and sisters, Paul here was fighting for us. For generations, men and women have stood firm on the gospel and said, we will not give an inch, we will not give a moment. The gospel needs to stay what the gospel is. There is no adding to it. There's no taking away from it. Paul was fighting for us so that we would have the opportunity to hear the pure, actual gospel and be saved. This wasn't about Paul and his gain. It wasn't him building his own little kingdom. He was concerned about those who would come to believe. He says, we won't submit for a moment. He will not give an inch. He wasn't, this was not about compromising. This is about truth and lies, life and death, heaven and hell, freedom versus slavery. He says in verse 4, because of the false brothers secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. False brothers secretly in their midst, they were in the midst. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. See, it's easy to play Christian. To know the right words at the right time, to have the right verses memorized, to know when you're supposed to put your hands up in worship and when you're not supposed to put your hands up in worship. It's not hard for someone to pretend like they're a follower of Christ and not actually be one. It's easy to put on a show. I mean, how many stories have been in the news about people in various roles and relationships within churches using that community to perform heinous actions and nobody saw it coming? It's why churches need elders. It's why we need elders to act as shepherds to protect the sheep, as well as our community itself serving one another and protecting one another. This does not mean that churches should be closed off to the outside world. On the contrary, we want to be a lighthouse that welcomes people in and gives them rest. But it means we grow together, we're in community together, we're doing life together, and then when things start to look, not look right or not sound right because we have built these relationships, that's when we can start to address problems. These false brothers came in trying to bring about a spiritual slavery. That's really the main crux of Paul's letter, that freedom is found in Christ alone. Christian freedom from the law. Paul's point is, look, if you're going to try and enforce this circumcision thing on people to be believers, you've got to put them under all of the law. You can't just say circumcision. You've got to say all of the Old Testament law, which, one, you do that, they're going to fail at it because everybody fails at it, and two, it was no longer needed now that Christ had come. The law was temporary. It was never designed to save anyone. The law was an MRI. When something is wrong with you, if you have something wrong with your brain, your, your body, whatever, you go, your doctor says, you got to go get an MRI. You go in, you go into the big tube, it makes all the sounds, they take scans of you. And you sit with the doctor and they put the scans up on the screen. And they say, look, you see the inflammation? You see how it's dark over here? You see how it's light over here? Yeah, something is wrong. And then what do they do? Then they say, okay, now we know what the problem is. Now we need to go take care of the cure. The MRI doesn't fix it. The MRI doesn't make you better. The MRI reveals the problem. The law revealed the problem of our hearts and souls that we have within us by our very nature, sin. The law revealed to us we fall short of the glory of God time and time again. It couldn't save us. Jesus saves us. Jesus was the cure. It's not that the law was a bad thing. It just wasn't meant to save anyone. 
Because after Christ came, it still guided and shaped how people lived, even after Jesus came and died and rose again. It just took on a different role and a different importance in their lives. But it was never meant to be their salvation. Now look, I realize if you've been with us for these last four weeks, I have talked about circumcision more in the last three or four weeks than we probably ever have, you ever have in your life. I get it. And for us in 2021 in Chicago, it's easy to hear about this and this issue and say, who cares? This doesn't apply to us. This doesn't mean anything to us. What's the point? And you're right. Circumcision is not a real hot-button issue today, especially in churches. No, for us, it's more like you can't be a Christian and drink alcohol. There's no way you can be a Christian and an egalitarian. You can't be a Christian and not be a member of a church. You can't be a Christian if you don't speak in tongues, if you weren't baptized as a believer. You can't be a Christian and work in that industry. You can't be a Christian if you dress that way, talk that way, live that way, think that way, ask those kind of questions. And most of the time, it's not even all that explicit, right? Churches will preach faith in Christ alone, amen and amen, but the actions as a community and as individuals will not line up with their statement of faith. We exclude people. We don't invite them to join our small groups. We don't ask them to serve. We gossip about them, disguising it as prayer requests for the person. And then we wonder why people are leaving the church. We wonder why people have such a struggle being part of a community. And when someone does show up to the church and they're shell-shocked and they're having trouble getting in because they got all kinds of baggage from the last place they were at, and then that just perpetuates things because we say, well, they don't want to get involved, so we're just going to exclude them because they're not Christian enough. When we do this, all we are doing is alienating and hurting someone who is already a believer, and we sow seeds of dissension and pain within a community and possibly lead that person to stumble and fall away into sin and walk away from the Lord in rebellion. Or on the flip side, it destroys our witness to non-believers and puts us in the exact situation Paul had to go to Jerusalem to ask, to address. Because the outside world is constantly paying attention, and if we can't treat each other with respect and love and grace and mercy, why in the world would they think we would treat somebody outside of the church that way? I cannot stress this enough. When you distort the gospel in the slightest way, when you are explicitly or implicitly putting barriers and arbitrarily deciding who you think is good enough to be a Christian, you are no longer proclaiming the good news. You are raining down eternal consequences on yourself and possibly for anyone who would believe you. This house, this family, this community, you don't get to decide who joins it. You don't get to decide who comes in. We are not God. Thank God that we are not God. He decides who he calls. He decides who he sanctifies. He decides who he wants to be part of his family. I told you, this is a high-stakes confrontation. It was for Paul then, and it's still for us today. See, when we talk about religion, we talk about theology, the study of God, we talk about Christianity, really we can, we can kind of boil things down into two two categories. We got, we got open-handed, we got close-handed, okay? Open-handed. Open-handed is stuff that we can discuss, we can debate, you can even change your mind on, right? Things such as baptism, infant baptism versus believer's baptism, style of worship, 
Should we have guitars and drums? Should we only sing hymns? Should we not sing at all? Leadership roles, who gets to be where? Who gets to serve how? Communion distribution, should it be weekly? Should it be quarterly? Should it be real wine? Should it be juice? Eschological interpretations of the back half of Daniel and Revelation, I'll put in open-handed. These are things you can talk through, you can debate, you can discuss, but they should not be angry fights. In our denomination, in the EFCA, we use the term significance of silence, meaning some of these things that land in the open hand. There, there's not an official denominational stance, and rather than flight, fight and split over these things, each local body gets to determine its ex execution and how these things get carried out. But a problem arises when someone takes an open-handed point and they try and shove it into the close hand. The close hand is closed for a reason. So what goes in the close hand? Triune God. One God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The deity of Jesus. Jesus was fully God. When Jesus was on earth, the humanity of Jesus. He was fully God and fully human. The reality and consequences of our sinful nature. We are born with sin. We were born rebelling against God. If we are left to our own devices, we are destined for hell. Our need for a savior, close hand. Jesus' role in dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin in our place. His resurrection being the affirmation that his sacrifice was accepted. Our debt was paid. Our spiritual bank account filled with Jesus' righteousness. These things go in the close hand. When you try to shove something from the open hand into the closed hand, that's often when you get dissensions, you get arguments, you get people leaving churches, and maybe even churches dying. And when you try and take something from the closed hand, and you say, you know what, that's more of an open-handed concept. We can debate whether or not God is one in three persons. That's when you enter into heresy, lies, and false messages. See, that's what Paul is fighting against because by just allowing this false message of adding to the gospel to exist without standing up against it, it is giving it credibility. There's a famous quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Sometimes silence is wise. Paul tells Timothy, avoid pointless arguments, it's not worth it. But sometimes... Silence can be a passive endorsement of evil. You need to be discerning on when to speak and when to stay silent. But an attack on a close-handed issue, that's a time to speak. And so Paul goes up to meet with these leaders. And he sets before them the gospel. He sets before them the gospel that he preached and believed. And he brought with him some hard evidence. What was it? Anybody know? What was the hard evidence Paul brought with him? Better question. Who was the hard evidence Paul brought with him? I ain't got nowhere to be. The bears are garbage this year. I can wait. Give me an answer. Titus. The back is scoring points, guys. Titus is a Gentile. He is a Greek. He heard the gospel, and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he was saved by God from the wrath of hell to be a blessing to others. Titus believed the gospel. And Paul's point is, that's enough. That's all he needed. Jesus' work on the cross was enough for Titus. He is forgiven. He is redeemed. He is a child of God. He doesn't need anything else. And the leaders in Jerusalem agree with him. We know that from verse 3. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was 
a Greek. To become a child of God is to believe you have sin that separates you from God and are in need of Jesus' death and resurrection to be counted as the payment for your sin. If you believe that and that alone, you will be saved. Not that plus your niceness, not that plus your kindness, not that plus your good works or your helpfulness. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The reality of the gospel is the thing that resolves this high-stakes confrontation. And it leads to a clarifying affirmation. The end result of the confrontation is an affirmation. Paul is affirmed in what he preaches. And there is unity amongst himself and the leaders in Jerusalem. The very thing that the false teachers were trying to separate, were trying to destroy. The false teachers were trying to say those in Jerusalem and Paul are on opposite sides. And Paul is wrong. And Paul is a liar. But now what has happened is Paul and the leaders in Jerusalem have come and said, no, we're all on the same team. We're all speaking the same language. It's you guys who have the problem. Not only was any potential disagreements or misunderstandings cleared up, but some clarity comes from the situation. Once everyone realized that not only was Paul preaching the same message they were preaching and that he had heard the gospel from the risen Jesus, when they realized he too was an apostle sent out by God himself just like they were, they treated him as such. That's what it meant. They extended the right hand of fellowship to him. They treated him as one of their own, as a colleague, as a brother in arms. It was also decided, since everybody's on the same page here, that there were some clear distinctions in calling and passion. And so they decided, let's lean into this. It was decided Peter and the rest of the apostles would continue to focus their ministry on the Jews, teaching them, showing them that Jesus is the Messiah they had waited for. He is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. Paul would continue to go to Gentile places, to places that we'd consider rocky or hard soil for the gospel to penetrate. Places where idolatry and satanic worship were not only present, but they were a way of life, and that's how most people got paid. He would continue to focus his ministry on seeing Gentiles come to know Christ. Both camps preached the same message, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. The same gospel message of grace and mercy and forgiveness. The same message of our desperate need for a Savior and that Savior being God himself come to earth to pay the penalty our sin demands so that we could have a right relationship with God and with humanity and with creation. The same message of the good news of great joy that is for all people that our Savior has come to give us new life here, now, forever. It didn't matter if it was Peter preaching to the Jews in the synagogues or it was Paul preaching in the public square in Rome. The message stayed the same. But while the message stayed the same, the mode and style were going to be different. Because your context matters. Paul wasn't going to go to the Gentiles who had nothing to do with the Old Testament and start quoting the prophets. That wasn't going to play for them. And in the same way, Peter and the apostles weren't going to walk into the synagogues and start talking about things outside of Jewish background and Jewish scripture. Your context matters. Where you are, who you are speaking with, it matters. It should inform and guide the way you speak about Jesus. One time uh, when I was in college, uh, the college I went to had undergrad and then also had the seminary uh, on the same campus. And we had a fire drill. So everybody's outside, we're waiting to go back inside, you know, for the firemen to clear it and, and whatever. Uh, and then I remember this seminary student jumps up on the table and starts, like, preach-yelling this fire and brimstone message 
about you know, sin and hell and avoiding those things by placing your faith in Jesus. Great message. Amen. Grace of God, get saved. Awesome. But maybe mid-morning on a Wednesday at a Bible college when most of these students are just trying to cram a few more Greek vocab words into their brain before a quiz, that's not the time and place to be yelling that kind of message. Right? His motivation, I'm going to assume the best of him, his motivation was, was a, hopefully a pure one that he wanted people to know Jesus and be transformed by them. And in Bible school, though, it's, it's a lot easier to, to pursue that in, you know, chapel or small groups or, you know, just having a conversation with a person. Yelling a generic evangelical or evangelistic message while people are just trying to, like, take a few minutes to breathe that was not the way to go about what he was trying to do. The context matters. Relationships matter. The message doesn't have to change, but the delivery should. We are in a neighborhood where we have some great churches around us. We got Addison Street Community Church down at Addison with, uh, with Pastor Will. We got New Life Community Church and Pastor Chad down Damon. We got HTC Holy Trinity Church down at the other end of Roscoe uh, with Pastor Kyle. And I know those men intimately. I know them personally. They are dear friends of mine. They love the gospel. Their churches love and live out the gospel. And they preach the gospel on Sundays. And they preach the gospel every time they're together. But if you go to any of our services, they're going to look a little different from one another. They're going to hold, those guys hold some some of those open-handed issues. I hold different opinions on some of those things as they do. But ultimately, they proclaim the gospel, and they want to see Roscoe Village and, and Lakeview redeemed for the kingdom. And so even though there are things we disagree on and there are stylistic things we don't do similarly, we still work together. We still build one another up. We still do events together. We support one another. We encourage one another. Even within the EFCA, our denomination, we're part of a denomination in which each local body governs itself, and each of our churches reflect the area and communities and makeup of the people that are in that church. So we look different than the Brook in Montclair. We look different than Agape Fellowship in Rogers Park, than Evanston Bible Fellowship in Evanston. We look different, act different, do different things, have different passions and callings, but all of us are united in the gospel. It might look different, but ultimately the message stays the same. Get to know the people in your life. Get to know the area you live in. Realize that as you get into conversations with your friends and family and coworkers or even strangers, that as you share the gospel, often it's going to have to look different depending on the setting you're in. Context matters. And so the leaders in Jerusalem extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. They are partners in ministry. Just because the context is different and the setting is different and the style is different doesn't mean you can't work together. You find the things you agree on. When you agree on the close-handed things, even if you disagree with the open-handed things, you can leave those up for discussion. You focus on the things that you agree on and you work together to further the kingdom of God. And so our high-stakes confrontation leads to a clarifying affirmation and finally a generous consideration. We see in verse 10, Paul says, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. As Paul and Barnabas were going to be sent out to go to the Gentiles, the leaders say, hey, remember the poor. And Paul says, yeah, I was, I was eager to do that anyway. Now look, in, in prepping for this morning and getting ready for this morning's sermon, I realized that we do not have enough time left this morning because I know you guys, some of you do have places to go. 
We don't have enough time this morning to tackle this verse the way I want to tackle it. And so next week, Lord willing, we're going to focus on this idea of remembering the poor. But I do want to say briefly just a a couple of things on this idea, and maybe it'll entice you to come back next week and maybe bring somebody with you. At first glance, this request in verse 10, it seems to not really make sense in relation to the rest of what Paul is talking about here. It seems kind of just tacked on at the end, right? It's not. This whole section, these 10 verses, 9 verses we've been looking at this morning, the confrontation, the affirmation, all of it center around the gospel. The good news that God has granted us mercy and grace and love and life. And also it is dealt with in the gospel, he deals with sin so that justice can be had. For those who have received the gift of the gospel, who know the goodness and love of God firsthand, it is out of affection and gratitude toward him that we are called to emulate him and to be a people who serve God by serving others. At some point, the phrase social justice, like a lot of really good things, got hijacked and became a political talking point. But if you just take those two words, put everything else to the side, Social justice, social, people, justice, making things right, making things right for people. Is that not the gospel? God made things right. He made a way for us to have a right relationship with him through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And from that flows the chance and ability for us to have not only a right relationship with God, but with one another and with creation itself to love and literally care for, as Jesus would say, the least of these, the weak, the outcast, the sojourner, the taken advantage of, to be present with them and care for them for no other reason than the fact that you know what unconditional, unearned love feels like. You love them because you know what love feels like. That in itself is living out the gospel. I would argue, and maybe I might next week, that to ignore the weak and least of these is to forget, and to forget the poor is to forget the gospel entirely. Because we ourselves were weak and poor and lost without it. The request from the leaders at the end in verse 10 is for Paul to not just talk the gospel, but to live it out. The same is true for us today. Are you, as Paul was, eager to live out the gospel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity to study this letter. To be reminded that true freedom is found in Christ and Christ alone. That the things of this world don't don't hold a candle. They have nothing that they can offer us that is better than Christ. It's better than walking in relationship with you. This world is fleeting and temporary here today and gone tomorrow. We know the only things eternal are your things. God, that we might be people who love the gospel, dwell on the gospel, live in and root ourselves in it. 
that we would regularly, daily rediscover, re-remind ourselves of our desperate need of our Savior. Just how good and freeing and life-giving that gospel message is. That it would filter every decision we make from the moment we wake up until our heads hit the pillow at night. That even our thoughts are driven by the gospel. Even those ones that nobody else knows but us, that those things are driven by and captured by the gospel. God, help us to lay aside our prejudices. Help us to lay aside our preferences so that others might come to hear the good news, so that others might come to know you and know the goodness and love that you offer, that others might come to be able to find that there is life and life eternal, life abundant to be had in relationship with you. Lord, all of us know people who right in this moment are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are condemned to eternity in hell. God, give us those opportunities. Help us in those moments to speak into those relationships, to be that light you have made us to be, that you have called us to be. You tell us that you have good works laid out ahead of time for us. You have moments set up for us to walk into where we get to be a light, where you've done all of the work already. We just need to be able to respond. Lord, help us to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit that we would hear, those, hear that push and we would respond in those moments to live out this gospel that we cling to so tightly. God, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. We thank you for this opportunity that though you don't need us, you invite us to be part of your story of redeeming and calling all things back to yourself. Give us the boldness, give us the strength, give us the courage as we go out to be the lights of the world you have made us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name, amen.